Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morrison and Forrester, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to the second in Morrison and Forrester's COVID podcast series discussing the legal impacts of the coronavirus. I'm Michael Ward, a partner at MoFo and head of the firm's patent group and also head of the firm's life science group. I'm joined today by four of my colleagues, Jean Wynn, a patent associate, Bethany Hills, who heads up our FDA practice, Matt Carlin from our commercial transactions practice, and Kristen Matthews from our privacy group. Today, we'll be talking about the application of artificial intelligence and data science to the fight against the pandemic. Jean, we'll start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yes. Hi, everybody. My name is Jean Wen. I am an associate in the patent group. I've been working with artificial intelligence and machine learning related inventions for a few years now, more recently with companies who are trying to use AI and machine learning to get a handle on COVID. Can you tell us some of the ways that companies are using AI and machine learning to combat the coronavirus? Yeah, so AI and machine learning are very powerful tools that can sift through large amounts of data. They can discover patterns and correlations in a way that is far superior than the human brain can. And with this capability, these companies are able to better track the virus, which helps combat it. So companies are using AI to diagnose patients and predict who may be at risk. They are also using AI and machine learning to track the spread. Additionally, AI and machine learning can help with the development of treatments such as vaccines and drugs. Okay, let's take these one by one. How is this being used to diagnose people? Well, there are a number of ways. I'll mention a few. First is an AI-powered self-checker, which is an interactive tool used to assess COVID-related symptoms. As one example, the CDC and Microsoft developed a chatbot that interacts with people who feel sick. And this chatbot helps people figure out whether or not they should visit the hospital or see a doctor. It also helps out with a number of other things, such as answering patients' questions, finding information about COVID, um, helping these patients send messages to providers, finding test results, and just checking in for upcoming appointments. Then there's also triaging. So hospitals are using it to triage patients. One example is an AI-powered program that takes the facial scan of a patient, and this allows the hospitals to quickly identify which patient has a fever. So not only can AI do things that humans can't do, they can also do things that humans can do, but with the benefit of being faster and more consistent. Uh, Finally, a last way is machine learning and AI is being used to diagnose patients by analyzing data, image dating more specifically. So for example, data from x-rays and CT scans. There's one company out there that is able to check for anomalies in an x-ray image, determine whether the patient has pneumonia, because as a lot of people know, pneumonia is um, one side effect from COVID, and then diagnose whether or not pneumonia was caused by the So, Jean, you also mentioned that in addition to diagnosing symptoms, you might actually be able to predict who is at risk? Yeah, right. As I mentioned earlier, AI looks at existing data to find patterns. And from these patterns, AI can make predictions. And this is referred to as predictive analysis. 
So one example is a study that was conducted back in May. It involved a database of blood samples from about 500 patients infected in Wuhan, China. And in this study, a machine learning model was trained to identify key biomarkers. Not only did the model predict the mortality rates of patients over 10 days in advance, but the accuracy was better than 90%. Wow, that's amazing. AI is being used to identify outbreaks as well. Isn't that right? That's correct. For example, AI was involved in spotting the first signs of outbreaks in many locations, including the U.S., There is this thing that some people say the international alarm about COVID was first sounded by a computer and not a human. And this alarm came from an AI-based data mining program developed by Boston Children's Hospital. How that program works is it scans social media, news reports, internet search queries, and other information streams for signs of an outbreak. And this scanning involves natural language processing, which parses through these information streams and differentiates between the different types of information. So it can parse through reported news compared to people complaining, compared to media-related bias. And so the information streams can provide the warning signs that the virus is spreading to various locations. So it can predict when we will see the peak of a spread in a given geographic location. It can also predict when we will see a peak in demands for ICU beds and ventilators. This same system at the end of last year saw unidentified pneumonia cases in Wuhan, and that's what caused this alarm. So how might this technology be helpful in predicting how COVID, or any other virus for that matter, is spreading? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, the outbreaks, the machine learning model can analyze websites and social media posts, news, um, to warn people in advance. It could also predict the patients that have COVID, which ones are more likely to deal with more severe symptoms and which ones of those patients should be treated in the hospital. And then there's also the CDC who's partnering with universities to develop a bunch of models. In addition, there are a lot of companies out there that are currently working on contact tracing apps. So determining where has everybody been, who's most likely to be infected, what's the risk, et cetera. Well, thanks very much, Jean. So we're gonna now turn to Kristen. Kristen, for those who didn't catch our first podcast episode yet, Can you introduce yourself? Yes. I am a partner in MoFo's Privacy and Data Security Practice Group, and I have experience with the privacy issues that are associated with artificial intelligence. Thanks. So Jean just told us a lot about how AI is being used to diagnose and track those exposed to the coronavirus. It's clear that there's some pretty major privacy issues we should be talking about. Let's start with contact tracing. Yes. So these are apps that use either GPS or Bluetooth on a mobile device to track who a person came into contact with for purposes of COVID-19 contact tracing. So many of these apps use artificial intelligence, and this is great for controlling COVID-19 outbreaks. It has challenges when it comes to privacy. So it's a trade-off. The best way to start thinking about it is to first identify the kinds of data about people that we're talking about. So first, of course, we have the identity of the person, whether it be their name or even just the identity of their mobile device by perhaps a unique identifier for the mobile device. There's also the precise geographic location of that person through their device over time. In other words, where they walk on the earth. 
There's also possibly their medical information. For example, they might self-report or perhaps from another source, the app might gain their COVID-19 diagnosis or their symptoms. Some of these apps actually have symptom questionnaires, whether they be self-reported or reported by a medical health provider. These apps also, in a sort of indirect way, could glean whether a person is compliant with a government restriction on their movement. So for example, let's say that the person has COVID-19 and the app knows that through self-reporting possibly. And let's say that the person is in a particular state or jurisdiction where as such, they are quarantined or maybe they're quarantined for some other reason. This app will know if they leave their house. And so in a roundabout sort of way, the app knows if they're complying with government requirements. The app also could derive inferences about somebody's social groups, economic groups, by who else they interact with. If they're spending a lot of time with other people, the app could possibly, through artificial intelligence, glean something about their demographics. So, Kristen, who has access to this data or who could have access to this data? Okay, well, let's start with who has access and then we'll go to who could have access. So, the app provider might have some or all of the data. Also, if they use a cloud service to provide the app, the cloud service might have some or all of the data. Researchers and scientists with whom the data is shared would have it. Governmental entities could get the data pursuant to law enforcement requests to any of the above, to the researchers, the scientists, the app provider, the cloud company. Government entities could subpoena or use other law enforcement or intelligence powers to obtain information. Similarly, private litigants could subpoena third parties, again, the app providers, the cloud service companies, the researchers, the scientists, for the information using subpoenas. And finally, hackers who might steal it from wherever it's stored in a cyber attack could get their hands on it. So Christian, what are some of the longer term privacy concerns regarding contact tracing data? Well, for the reasons that I've mentioned, these apps are pushing the envelope on privacy issues beyond what was acceptable and tolerated before the pandemic. So the question that comes top of mind is, will this really only be a temporary solution or will it become the norm? Will we keep this level of contact tracing in place after the pandemic in case perhaps there's another pandemic or for some other reason? Will we keep the data that has been collected through this longer than we really need it in order to deal with this particular pandemic? So how are we dealing with the privacy issues associated with the AI that is involved in these apps? What are some solutions? Well, let's talk about some of the concerns and some of the solutions. One concern is about the accuracy of decisions, automated decisions that are made by artificial intelligence. Like the AI algorithm may dictate a quarantine on a person who it believes was in the same room as someone who was found to have had COVID. But in truth, they were in apartments next to one another or they were separated by a wall. The app can't know that, but yet it's drawing conclusions. And in some cases, incorrect or inaccurate conclusions. And some of those conclusions have impact on people and their freedoms. There's also the unconscious bias of those who code, configure, and train the app. 
there's a lot of talk about this issue of artificial intelligence being tainted by unconscious biases that are present in those who code, configure, and train them. And then relevant to some of the issues that I've talked about privacy related is avoiding the app's collection of personal information. In other words, let's see if we can design the app in a way that the data, the real data is actually stored locally on the device. It's not decentralized. It's not on a cloud server. It's not sent to the developer. It's all local or most is local, or maybe something that goes off the device is only in anonymized form before it's shared anywhere. So what kind of government guidelines are being put in place regarding how this data is collected? Quite a few and many different jurisdictions, US, Europe, all over have issued guidance with regard to COVID tracking apps and COVID tracing apps. So I'll give you a kind of synthesis of them. One is that the tracing apps should be voluntary on the part of the user. I'm not saying that every country and jurisdiction abides by this. Some don't. So in some cases they are mandatory, but this is one of the guidelines that's been promulgated by a number of different sources. One is that you get separate consent from the user for different app functionalities. So an app might have multiple functionalities and it could be that a user is okay with one of the functions, but not with another function. So if you enable the consents to be specific for each functionality, that's a help. Another is to minimize the amount of data that is collected to only what is necessary for the intended function of the app, not to grab more just because we have the opportunity. Another is to have a time limit on the data retention. So I spoke earlier about the high level concern that many of us have, which is, yes, we're doing this now because we have to, but is it going to continue after the pandemic is over? That has a lot to do with data retention. So the guidelines often say that this data should only be retained and should automatically be deleted, systematically deleted after a certain amount of time. Another point to make is to just recognize the difference between proximity data versus geographical data. I didn't do this point justice earlier when I spoke about precise geographical location. So let's just do it now. Geographical data is where on this planet a person is and where they're going over time. Proximity data is different. It actually doesn't tell you where the person is. It just tells you who they were next to. Now that has its own privacy implications, but those are necessary for contact tracing inherently. But for contract tracing, it may not be as necessary to know where they were on the earth. And so a lot of these guidances are saying, let's design the apps to use proximity data. In other words, detect who a person was near as opposed to detecting where they were. Another point that a lot of the guidance is coming up with is that proximity data should be stored locally on the user's device and only shared with user consent. In other words, this is the decentralized aspect that I talked about a bit earlier. Keep as much data on the device as possible and as least as possible disseminated to the rest of the parties. Security and accuracy of data is a big one. Also, to the extent that algorithms are used, like for example, artificial intelligence, to make automated decisions about people, those algorithms should be auditable and regularly reviewed by independent experts. And in addition, people who are the subject of automated processing, automated decisions, should have the ability to contest and get a human review of the decision or of the conclusion that the AI has made. Thanks very much, Kristen. Let's now turn to Matt Carlin. 
Matt, can you please introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Mike. Hi, everybody. Uh, Matt Carlin. I'm a partner in Morrison Enforcer's Boston office. I work in our technology transactions group and our commercial life sciences transactions and licensing practice. And really happy to be here today. Thanks, Matt. What development have you seen with regard to cloud computing and AI? So I think the biggest development uh, that we've seen really over the course of the past decade, or even a couple of decades, is that artificial intelligence has been fueled by the growing ability to collect, store, and process really just incredibly significant amounts of digital data. Uh, And that's been entirely fueled by the growth of the cloud. And so when we talk about the cloud, we talk about volume, velocity, and variety of data. So volume, just incredible amounts of data that is being used, processed, and stored on a daily basis in the cloud. The velocity or the speed at which that data is being collected is really the likes of which we've really never seen before. And the variety of that data, there are so many different types of data sets um, that are being input into the cloud. And all of that is coming together to fuel really what Gene was talking about earlier, incredible AI applications that are really having a significant impact in all areas of technology and life sciences. So to put it in perspective, today, more than 25 billion sensors are connected to the internet. There's more than 5 billion mobile phone users around the world. There's 4.5 billion internet users, and that's growing on a daily basis. And there's over 3.8 billion social media users on a variety of different platforms, many of which I'm sure most of you are familiar with Facebook, YouTube, and so on and so forth. All of that is converging and all of the data that's used in those applications is converging to create just an incredible resource that's really fueling the development of artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence applications. It's really incredible and it's really impactful when we talk about things like therapies for COVID-19, vaccine development for COVID-19, and other types of developments in the life sciences. So Matt, what role are governments taking in the development of AI applications? So it's really significant, and we're really following this on a moment-by-moment basis. So in this country, in the United States, for example, earlier last year, President Trump signed an executive order which directed the United States government to prioritize artificial intelligence in its research and development spending. This was a big deal when it comes to the development of artificial intelligence and the use of artificial intelligence and the immense volume of data in the cloud for government purposes. And then just earlier this year, in March of 2020, the White House announced the launch of the COVID-19 High Performance Computing Consortium, which brought together or is bringing together industry leaders in AI with national labs and academics and universities to, and I'm going to quote here, significantly advance the pace of scientific discovery to help fight COVID-19. So Earlier last year, pre-COVID, pre-pandemic, there was a huge focus in the United States government to prioritize artificial intelligence and development of artificial applications that are driven by artificial intelligence and the data that's used, processed, and stored in the cloud. And then when COVID-19 became a reality and the pandemic set in, it was then that the United States government really formed this consortium to think about and drive forward how we can use artificial intelligence and the applications that are developed and being developed in that area to impact the development of therapies, to impact the development of that vaccine, and to impact ultimately, you know, ridding this country and perhaps even the world of the virus. 
So that's here in this country. So there's been a big drive in the United States towards implementing a strategy with respect to the use of artificial intelligence for research and development. In other countries, for example, in the United Kingdom, a year or so ago, the United Kingdom's Department for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy published a policy paper, which the main focus of the paper was to put the United Kingdom at the forefront of artificial intelligence and data revolution. So that was long before COVID, and that was really a recognition in the United Kingdom of the importance of artificial intelligence to that country. More broadly speaking, a couple of years ago, the European Commission announced a series of measures to put AI to use in the European Union to boost competitiveness in business and competitiveness in tech. And that was really a big deal because these are now countries and then conglomerates of countries that are really recognizing that to be competitive, you have to be using the data that's used, processed, and stored in the cloud to drive applications, the basis of which is artificial intelligence. And then finally, a couple of years ago, China set 2030 as a deadline for China to take the lead on a worldwide basis when it comes to artificial intelligence and when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence and applications that are driven by artificial intelligence within its government and within its private sector as well. So how are companies collaborating to use this data in the fight against COVID? So in many, many, many different ways, Kristen talked a little while ago about contact tracing, and we were super excited about contact tracing a few months ago when the pandemic first set in and and really became a reality. Contact tracing was something that was hopefully going to really impact the ability of state governments here in the United States and the federal government and then governments around the world to really pinpoint where the pandemic and where COVID-19 is located and who has it and how it's spreading. The unfortunate reality with respect to contact tracing, I think, is that it's been very slow to be adopted by consumers. And it won't work unless consumers adopt it, unless people download the apps and use the apps properly. It can't work without the data that's input into the application in order to trace who has COVID and the spread of COVID. That being said, lots of companies have come together with state governments, with the federal government, in order to develop contact tracing apps that are really user-friendly and hopefully will be adopted on a broader basis. So for example, and this was reported widely, New York City and Salesforce partnered to build a COVID-19 tracing app that really was a complete full suite. It came with a call center and customer relationship people and case management systems with the goal of really better tracking the spread of the infection. So this was an app where, like Kristen said, not only did it collect data about where you were or where your phone was, but it also came with the ability to communicate with human beings to report on symptoms, to report on who you came in contact with or where you were or where you traveled. So it was really a full suite to hopefully impact the spread of the virus. There have been lots of other examples. You know, one example on another end of the spectrum that we talk about quite a bit is the Kingdom of Bahrain launched a COVID-19 tracking program that relies on GPS tracking electronic bracelets and an app coupled with that. And the system actually alerts, and I'm sure Kristen would have a lot to say about this from a privacy perspective here in the United States, But the system actually alerts a government monitoring station when an infected individual leaves isolation or the bracelet loses its connection. So now information is flowing from the consumer and the app directly to the government. Additionally, and certainly Kristen would have a lot to say about this, the Ministry of Health officials randomly send picture requests 
to which self-isolating individuals must respond with a photo that clearly shows their face and bracelet. So they've taken it to really a different extreme, probably one that wouldn't be readily accepted here in the United States. But you can kind of begin to see how, from a partnering perspective, governments and companies are really partnering together in order to develop applications in order to stop the spread of the virus. There's lots of other examples, Mike, in the area of patient care, in the area of treatments and vaccines, where where companies are coming together. Universities are coming together with private corporations. Private corporations are coming together with governments. Governments are even coming together in order to drive forward the use of data in applications that use that data in order to positively impact both the spread of COVID-19 as well as the development of therapies and a vaccine. So what are some of the legal issues companies should be aware of when negotiating deals involving data and AI? So certainly one of the things we do in our practice is we take all of the incredible intellectual property that colleagues like Gene work with companies on. We take all of the privacy considerations that colleagues like Kristen are so laser focused on. And then later you'll hear from another colleague, Bethany, and we take all of the information with respect to regulatory requirements. And we put together deals or transactions for companies in this space. And so when we think about all of those different issues, we have to really articulate what are the protections that we put in place for companies? What are the protections we put in place for universities? What are the protections we put in place for governments when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence in business and in transactions? And one of the big ones really that we focus on quite a bit with the help, of course, of Gene and the intellectual property group at MoFo is IP ownership and protection. We're always thinking about because each artificial intelligence discipline is different in its specific implementation. We're always thinking about what are the intellectual property aspects of the transaction and what are the different intellectual property ownership structure with respect to the system. So for example, can an artificial intelligence system be an author of a work? That's certainly a question that gets raised all the time. If the algorithms upon which the the AI is based change over time, is the original author the owner of the developed algorithms? If not, well, who is? If a third party owns the data that is input into the system that is used or processed or stored, that's analyzed in the system, who is the owner of the output? Again, these are all different questions from an intellectual property perspective that we're constantly challenged with because it's such a changing landscape and because the legal considerations from an IP perspective in AI are not consistent with the legal perspective from an intellectual property standpoint in other types of transactions. So critical questions to ask, who owns the data? As we said earlier, artificial intelligence applications are fueled by data. And we talked a little bit about the variety of that data, all different types of data coming from all different places. Well, who owns it? Who owns the results? Data is input into the system. Data is output from the system. Who owns the output? If a discovery is made using an AI program, who owns that? Who owns the application that was developed in order to process the data that's input into the application? All of those questions and issues really need to be solved for and addressed within the framework of a contract. And so certainly one of the key focuses should be intellectual property and the allocation of intellectual property rights between and among the parties to a particular transaction. Thank you, Matt. That was really interesting. Let's now turn to Bethany Hills. Bethany, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, Mike. 
I'm Bethany Hills. I'm a partner at MOFO in the FDA and life science regulatory practice, which, as you can imagine, has been very busy during this period of a global pandemic. So, Bethany, what are some of the ways that the FDA has been addressing the use of AI and software in fighting COVID? So it's really interesting. Perhaps a little bit of history is useful here before we dig into the COVID-related FDA response. FDA has, over the past number of years, been working on ways to properly characterize and then regulate artificial intelligence-based products. And we have a white paper from FDA about their vision for how to regulate artificial intelligence that came out about a year and a half ago. But there are very few products that are software-based that are really, truly artificial intelligence. So that would be a strong machine learning capability or an actual artificial unmitigated and unresponded to or unvalidated artificial intelligence that have actually gone through a formal regulatory process with FDA. There are a handful of those products. And so as I'm listening to my other panelists and some of the things that's just such exciting work that's being done with software and with artificial intelligence, it is, I have to say, overwhelming because a lot of these products would be regulated as medical devices by the FDA and currently are not going through a regulatory process to make sure that they're validated. For example, the products that are actually assisting with symptom analysis and diagnosis, that type of a product in normal circumstances would absolutely be regulated by FDA as a medical device. It meets the definition of a medical device. And so we're faced with this really unique circumstance where the technology has far outpaced the regulatory framework that's available and is literally leaving the FDA miles behind. I guess there's no other way to say that. They're just way behind on this one. What they have done is a couple of interesting things, which I think are useful, but they're very much looking at what I would consider older technologies, not really this, this new artificial intelligence-driven technology that we see being created around the COVID-19 situation. So they're First step was to create a guidance that allowed for the remote monitoring of patients and modifications to existing hardware and software that would allow for remote monitoring without having to go to FDA for new approvals. And I don't think that that really touches on many artificial intelligence-based softwares, but it is something that is software-based and FDA got on that right away. Another thing they did, which is kind of interesting, there is a fairly recent categorization of software-based medical devices for treating psychiatric disorders based on cognitive behavioral therapy. And this is fascinating to me. FDA got right out on this and recognized that there could be a real need for addressing potential psychiatric conditions or developing psychiatric conditions during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so they created an enforcement policy that cognitive behavioral therapy softwares that would normally need to go through a very rigorous approval process to get their product approved through FDA could actually launch on the market with essentially internal validation without needing to go through presenting their data and going through an FDA process. And that's a fairly big deal. It's not actually an emergency use authorization. So FDA has not specifically reviewed that product, 
it's sort of like a blanket emergency use authorization where they open it up and they say we're going to exercise enforcement discretion and not require some of these special controls. They did something similar with remote ophthalmic assessment and monitoring devices for evaluating eye conditions and eye diseases, which is really important because as you can think about the idea of going into an eye doctor at this point in time in the context of COVID is not one that we really don't want people that close to each other in that healthcare context. And there are tools, particularly artificial intelligence tools. This is one of the areas where FDA has reviewed artificial intelligence-based software for assessing and diagnosing diseases of the eye. And so the idea was that we can expand this to create a remote assessment and to have this ability to do that without needing to have healthcare professional contact. And they did something similar for remote digital pathology devices, another important area to be able to have evaluation of the pathology slides and have those be able to be presented in a remote fashion. So they really used a tool, which we call enforcement discretion, very heavily in the software and artificial intelligence space. Bethany, is this software critical to new ways of providing care during the pandemic? I do think this software is critical to providing new ways of delivering care. As I mentioned, certainly meeting the initial public health concern of maintaining social distance healthcare distance, 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 distance. So remote monitoring became a very big thing very fast. And so being able to reduce patient contact was a major policy driver behind the handful of guidances that I mentioned that FDA put in place right away. And as I said, this is a, an enforcement discretion policy, not an emergency use authorization. And so this is FDA's saying, we're going to step aside and not enforce you to come in and share your device with us ahead of time or get pre-approvals, explain to us the modifications, but rather go ahead and use them as long as you have certain basic level protections in place. And I do think that the software that has been discussed so far has become really critical to dealing with the pandemic. So have there been any other firsts for the FDA in recent months? There is one thing of note. There is an artificial intelligence-based software tool that did receive emergency use authorization. So quick refresher, emergency use authorization is a more compressed version of an approval pathway. It is something that requires a review by FDA that a product may be safe and effective which is different from the statutory standard that we would usually apply to products, that they actually be safe and effective. And so here there was an emergency use authorization granted to a artificial intelligence-based software tool that is from a group called CLEW, C-L-E-W, Medical. And they have a remote data monitoring system that actually does a lot of the activities that Jean mentioned earlier in her point they actually predict and identify COVID patients under intensive care, looking at a wide variety of data points that are coming in from those individuals, particularly those that would be at risk of respiratory failure or insufficient blood flow. And what they do is they take massive amounts of data, which the human brain could not process on its own, and run it through an artificial intelligence algorithm linking it back to medical records, linking it to other connected devices that are on them, looking at the vital sign monitors, really just 
completely encompassing that individual patient with a data monitoring bubble to understand what's going on with them. And then alerting providers to a patient's deteriorating condition. So actually serving as a diagnostic aid that will let a real-time classification model be in place to create an alert for the healthcare provider and predict which patients may require intervention within the upcoming eight-hour period. And that received an emergency use authorization. So it is the only software-based emergency use authorization that's gone through FDA's process. And it's fascinating because it creates this score, this index with very complex statistical models. And then it actually has a very immediate effect that healthcare practitioners can determine whether or not that person should be moved into the ICU, out of the ICU, whether they might want to do a preemptive placing them on a ventilator. That's one of the issues that we noticed in the high concentration areas that because of timing and ventilator availability, by putting a patient on a ventilator too late, you may miss an opportunity to be able to prevent them from further deterioration. And so these algorithms were actually trained using supervised learning, and they were based on models that were based on clinical events that were happening. It was amazing how quickly they were able to take existing information from the COVID-19 pandemic and experience in hospitals and turn it into these predictive models that could actually be used right away within a few months period. And that to me is, it almost gives me chills because we never see that kind of speed of the need for something to be able to be developed and be able to get through an FDA process and be available to be used practically so quickly. Thanks very much, Bethany. And thank you to all our speakers today. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.